At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. He taught me ethics, ethics, ethics. Being more thoughtful about the lives of the animals and humans that produce our food. And that simply but skillfully prepared meals made from high-quality whole foods are the most delicious and satisfying. Also, that Purdue doesn't give a crap if I'm a vegetarian, though of course that's a fine choice, but they care enormously when I choose a chicken that was raised and slaughtered more humanely eats a species-specific diet, and doesn't need to be pumped full of antibiotics. Michael Pollan taught me to change industrial practices with my shopping cart. For today's episode, we asked the Food52 community a very simple question. How has Michael Pollan's work impacted your life? If you don't know him, Michael is a journalist who, over the past 10-plus years, has become well-known as a champion of the food movement. His work on the American diet and food systems caused the New York Times to call him one of today's most prominent voices on food. It's also caused a lot of people to start gardens or join CSAs or just to buy more things with mostly pronounceable ingredients. But the chances are better that you do know him. Maybe you've seen the slogan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, on a bumper sticker east of Berkeley. Or you've read his books on food systems, Omnivore's Dilemma, which is celebrating 10 years since publication this year, or In Defense of Food or The Botany of Desire. Maybe you've seen Cooked, a Netflix adaptation of his most recent book that touts cooking as the answer to many of our problems. You could have read his open letter to President Obama back in 2008, warning that the health of a nation's food system is a critical issue of national security. Or you might live by a few food rules you picked up from merely being a human who consumes media today. Always eat animals that have themselves eaten well. Or shop the peripheries of the supermarket and stay out of the middle. These are both Michael. That response to our question you heard at the top of the show from Kate in New York was one of many. This food movement's message is everywhere. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. This is Burnt Toast. And here are a few more. Reading The Omnivore's Dilemma made me care not only about how I spend my money on food, but also on the stories that revolve around food. Stories where a city boy marries into a family of cattle farmers and has a spiritual awakening about what family means, thanks to farming. Or stories about how a woman retires from a career of working with refugees in far-flung, war-torn places and now devotes herself to making cheese in a basement. But beyond the fun of telling these stories, Pollen made me want to be a better journalist. Reading his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, allowed me to better shape my thoughts and justification around my own dietary decision of being a vegetarian, while opening my perspective on other cultures and food. And what's more, I was lucky enough to be raised in a family that had home-cooked meals far more often than not. 
So I had never really realized the full extent of the fast food phenomenon and how much it's taken our society by storm until I watched his series on Netflix, Cooked. He completely changed my view of the ethics of hunting, especially when compared to the industrial meat industry. In 2006, I started cooking for a fraternity, like real food cooked from scratch. But it wasn't until I read Omnivore's Dilemma that I started asking the question, where are all these ingredients coming from? I was considered a fringe and annoying customer by my national food supplier for pressing for sourcing information. Now, 10 years later, that same company is promoting local, non-GMO, grass-fed beef. If it isn't sourced responsibly, it's by definition not good, no matter how it tastes. The first Michael Pollan book I read was In Defense of Food. I picked it up before I went back to school to study nutrition, and the book's message mirrored the reasons why I wanted to become a dietitian. People don't know what real food is anymore. People don't cook. And eating real food can prevent a host of chronic diet and lifestyle-related diseases. His book's central message to eat real food, not too much, mostly plants, is exactly what I spend my days trying to help others understand as the most simple way to care for their long-term health. So his work is a force. Or rather, this work is a force. Michael would be the first to tell you that he doesn't take all the credit for this or the change it's affected. But you might wonder if at least some of it hasn't gone to his head. So many people have so many things to say about how he's changed their lives. I wondered, so I asked him. And before we play his answer, I should let you know that we had a few technical difficulties with recording our Skype interview with him. You'll hear just a little more static than usual. <laughs> well, I don't think of myself as a food celebrity. Um, you know, I, I every day I get up and try to write again and I feel like I'm starting from scratch. <laughs> but I mean, since the Netflix series was on, I have been struck by how many people stop me on the street, actually. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I'm very gratified to see that that series seems to have reached a lot of people and, and inspired them, which was kind of the idea. Um, and people are sending me images of their loaves of bread on Twitter. And I found that very gratifying. I mean, that people could watch a show and actually get in the kitchen and do something like that. Because baking a loaf of bread isn't easy. I mean, they're much easier things to start with. Um, so it's very nice to have a platform where you can reach people if you have a, a you know an opinion about something or you've come across some really cool piece of information or link and that you can get it around. I think that's great. Though more important, what's gratifying is seeing how the whole food landscape has has changed in the last 10 years it's not something i take credit for i mean i think i'm i'm part of a group of of journalists and activists that have helped driven a certain amount of change in the in the attitude of consumers and 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 a little bit in the in the minds of policymakers but it is very uh you know at a time when so many issues are are going in the opposite direction um there is a there's a lot of positive momentum in the food space so there, you know, I've always had one eye on the individual and his or her own relationship to food, and trying to make, to, trying to encourage that person to be more conscious of what's at stake when you make a very simple eating decision, and then another eye on on the system as a whole, um, on policy, on the farm bill, on the, the the way the rules of the game have been written to encourage a certain kind of eating and a certain kind of farming. So I, you know, I sort of feel like I'm I'm always going down one path or the other, um, a political path or a personal path. But you know, as we learned in the '60s, the personal is political, and and nowhere is that more true in the in the area of food. 
Before we get too far down this path, you should know that there was a life before all this food celebrity, before the food rules and the eminently quotable lines like eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Michael Pollan, at one point in his life, was just like us. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was a, you know, a pretty unconscious eater um, before Omnivore's Dilemma. I mean, we, you know, I had a young son and we ate it you know, he liked McDonald's and we went to McDonald's and I, I had a pretty uncomplicated relationship to food. I mostly liked it. I ate a little too much of it. I weighed about 20 more pounds, I'd say. And the more I learned about food, the less appealing that way of eating became. It wasn't so much a, a resolution to stop going to McDonald's and or eating uh, processed food. It was what happens when you see too much and, you know, you've been on, you've stood in those feedlots and, you know, with your ankles dunked in manure with these miserable animals or been in the hog confinement facility or watched how the chickens get slaughtered on an assembly line. And you really, those images come to mind when you, when you eat that food and, and it becomes much less appealing. Um, so over time, I changed. I certainly changed the kind and amount of meat that I eat. Um, we eat meat only a couple times a week, if that. And it's always from farms we know, we have direct knowledge of, um, people we trust. Um, I shouldn't say always, because if I go to someone's house and they serve meat, I'm not going to make a big fuss about where they got it. Um, I'm a good guest. People shouldn't be afraid to take over. <laughs> But so I've changed, definitely changed around eating meat. I eat much more of a plant-based diet. Um, I pay attention to labels and, and, and learn where things came from. And then as a matter of cooking, yeah, definitely cook more often than I used to and eat out less. In large part because I really enjoy it. I mean, it's my it's it's especially when I'm here in Berkeley. I mean, you know, to be able to go to markets here and buy fresh produce and then cook it is much more fun and, and tasty than going to a restaurant most of the time. Yeah, I'm jealous of you guys out there. I know we have it really easy. <laughs> yeah. This year I was living on the East Coast for the entire year eating in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I had quite a um reminder that it's not easy to eat well uh, everywhere. Uh, even though there's some decent food in Cambridge, you know, the quality of the produce, the access to sustainable meat, things like that are just not not quite the same yet. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. In a perfect world where food access or levels of income aren't barriers to buying and eating sustainable food, real good food, Michael proposes a few rules to live by. Things that will do the most right by you, by the environment, by the animals you eat. Here are a few of his 64. Don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. If it came from a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't. Eat all the junk food you want as long as you cook it yourself. Do all the eating at a table. Don't eat breakfast cereals that change the color of the milk. Eat when you're hungry, not when you're bored. The most important rule, though, the escape hatch rule. You should, and it is mandate, break the rules every so often. There is an escape hatch rule, you know, break the rules once in a while. But yeah, in general, I follow them. Yeah. Well, what does that mean for you when you break one? Oh, let's see. Um, what? 
I'm trying to think of an example of a rule I broke recently. Um, well, one of my rules is pay more, eat less, but I'm also really cheap. And uh, <laughs> so, so I'll quibble with somebody over the price that they're trying to charge for a chicken or, or uh, a peach. And, you know, I just bought some peaches for five fifty a pound, which is basically, you know, $3 a peach at a farmer's market. And I grumbled about it. And my wife had to remind me, pay more, eat less. Yeah. Um, so I, I break that rule by not willingly paying more and eating less. But I, I try to remember. Um, and, you know, uh, on the other hand, when I ate that 550 a pound peach, the experience, you know, we, we, we just feel food should be cheap, unreasonably so. But I have to say, I got quite a pricey pleasure from that peach. <laughs> yeah, it's an ingrained expectation, I think, in our in our culture, definitely, that food should be cheap. Yeah, and it's something we need to change because um, cheap food has been a trap uh, for many people in many different ways, and and for farmers and for the whole system. And uh, but it's it's not easy to change it. Yeah, of course. I like to think of it like you know, if you if you're not paying a lot for a piece of food, somebody is not getting paid, and whether that means the animal is not being treated well or the person who who picked the tomato isn't being paid well, or. Yeah, well, you know, there's no free lunch, as they, they said in a whole other context, but it, it applies very well to lunch. Yeah, totally. Do you think about um, reaching a new audience at all when you're writing? I'm, I'm thinking of your book, Cooked, um, and how it preaches the importance of home cooking. But I can't help assuming that, you know, many of your readers who already follow your work, they already do cook. They already f see the importance in that. Well, that's, you know, that's true. I mean, I do a fair amount of preaching to the choir and, and, uh, and, and the choir needs to hear preaching too, you know, mm -hmm. and needs, needs to be encouraged. And, um, I think there's nothing wrong with that, but, but I also am very self-conscious about trying to reach other people. And that's why I do television. That's why I do radio. That's, you know, I, so I work in a whole lot of different media and I mean, my most comfortable in my home media and the one where I do my thinking is, is print without question. But whenever I have opportunities to uh, reach beyond that by doing uh, electronic media, uh, podcasts, all sorts of stuff, I take advantage of it um, because it is important to, you know, expand that circle of people who care about these issues. And it, it, it's disheartening because I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I talk a lot about obesity to very slim people. Yeah. And, um, you know, my yeah. audiences tend not to be the people who most need to hear it. But I, you know, I tell myself, and maybe I'm fooling myself, that they in turn influence other people. But I think there's some truth to that. And and then the work with television, which clearly reaches a, a whole different kind of audience. Um, I don't just do Netflix. I, I mean, I do public television and I've done worked on features and things like that. So you do what you can to reach beyond your, your usual circle. Um, but it is constantly on my mind is um, how to how to reach beyond uh, the people I know best and are already sold. But on the other hand, we've seen the number of those people increase dramatically in the last 10 years. So, so something's working. Even beyond yourself and the work that you do personally, how much of the food movement do you think is an echo chamber? I think about this all the time. And sometimes it can really just feel like the same people telling the same people to buy organic kale. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's probably true in the climate change movement and in the Black Lives Matter movement and any number of other movements. I mean, you have these these bubbles in which people live and 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 where everybody's obsessed with something that not everyone else cares about. 
and you're trying to bring more people into your bubble or expand your bubble. And um, so I think that's an occupational hazard of, of having a passion you share with other people. But I, I sure I do get tired of it, certainly. And I, I'm very happy to, to uh, talk to other people about other topics. And in fact, I'm writing on other topics right now. And, and part of that is out of sense that I don't feel like I have something, you know, radically new I need to say to the food community at the moment. Um, so, you know, I'm a journalist first, you know, long before I'm a food activist or author. And my favorite place to be is learning something new. And, you know, I know a fair amount of food at this point. There's still things I can learn, especially on the international side of things. But, you know, I, I, I am hungry for other kinds of information. Even if he doesn't feel like he has something radically new about food that he needs to say right now, so many people do. The food media industry can feel a little saturated. And Michael said, as far as this movement's concerned, that there are too many writers and chefs and not enough lobbyists. There's a lot of interest right now. And, and, and one way to look at it is we have the public's ear and it's very important to take advantage of it. But on the other side, you know, when people ask me, you know, and I'm thinking of college students, I, I, I speak a lot on college campuses and they ask me what can I do to to move this you know reform movement forward and I encourage people to look beyond writing and chefing I mean we have a lot of chefs and we have a lot of writers but we we need people that are smarter on politics you know there's a lot of amateurs in this movement myself included uh, I, I was recently in, at uh, Harvard Law School and there's a food law clinic and classes on food law and this this cell of I don't know, 15 or 20 um, future lawyers who are passionate about policy and know, know already far more about it than I do. And, and these are the people who are going to someday be writing a new farm bill, uh, we can hope. So speaking to those kind of people get, you know, really fills me with uh, a sense of optimism. Uh, people in public policy, too, uh, scientists working on, you know, agriculture and climate change. There's so many different doors to go through on this issue because it does embrace so much. I mean, it, it connects health, it connects the environment, it connects social, you know, of the health of families, the psychology. So there may be a lot of writing out there, but uh, there's a lot to write about. And there are people starting, I think, to get involved and business people. I mean, entrepreneurs who are, you know, I think making a really important contribution right now to food reform by starting very innovative businesses. So, yeah, I encourage people to look beyond writing and chefing uh, because that's, you know, I think we have that pretty well covered. So we need larger voices in politics and in law to complement those writers and chefs because he thinks it actually is possible for sustainability to go mainstream. The difference here is that he doesn't think it's a choice. Do you truly believe that it's economically feasible for sustainability to go mainstream? And, you know, how long does that take? Yeah. Um, and, and not because we choose to, but because we have to. I mean, the, the system that we have it, you know, when we say it's unsustainable, we're not just saying it's not pretty or we don't like it or it doesn't taste good or it doesn't make us feel good. We're saying there's some fundamental inherent problems that are going to lead to a breakdown. I don't know where that's going to happen. Um, but either, you know, right now, for example, if people continue to eat meat worldwide at, at the rates we are and, and, and try to eat as much meat as Americans are eating, we're never going to hit 
uh, two degrees Celsius or even 2.5 degrees Celsius on, on uh, the climate change, on, on, on the increase in temperatures. So there's no question but that the food system can't go on if we were to survive. Um, so I think that there's a, there, there are forces in motion that will drive that change besides the goodwill of a handful of corporate executives. I mean, I think that um, you will see more and more companies moving in this direction because the soil is is in trouble, because the climate's in trouble, because our health is in trouble. Just take public health for an example. I mean, the, the cost of treating type 2 diabetes, which is almost entirely preventable and owes in large part to the Western diet that we're all eating, uh, is going to bankrupt healthcare systems. And so governments and insurance companies are beginning to take a very strong interest in people's eating habits. Um, and that will drive uh, that kind of sustainability, I think, in time. So yeah, I'm, I, I do think we're going to get there. I don't know if we'll get all the way there. I think there will still be fast food, but it'll be better and more sustainable. And it's not going to be easy to do. Making it affordable for everybody is going to be a huge challenge. But I think that the forces are in motion. The forces are in motion. If you haven't read any of Michael's work, do. Or check out the Netflix adaptation of Cooked. And watch for his next book. This time he'll be writing about a different kind of mushrooms, psychedelics. And that is it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to Simon and Katie, Lizzie and Darlene, Jolie and Elena, and everyone else who wrote in for sharing your thoughts with us at the top of the show. Thanks also to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at Food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. For Michael Pollan, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>